Our reading this morning is taken from Colossians 1, verses 24 to the second chapter, verse 5. This is on page 1183 of your Pew Bibles. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. We often or nearly always pray before we come to look at God's word, but I always think when you, you've sung that song, it's, it's a prayer. Um, so let's, let's have it in, the, in our minds that we've already invited God to speak to us. Um, let's, let's be ready to hear what he has to say. Uh, Thank you to Emma for leading us so far. Uh, I was struck again, I think Monty made a point last week, the the passage he was looking at sounded pretty wordy and pretty heavy in some ways. Paul's writings can sometimes be like that. Um, I think today's passage is is still um, not not super simple. Um, So we, we do pray that God will come and help us to understand his word and then and then to want to live it. I got an email this week from a friend in the church who wanted a a little bit of advice, a bit of help. Uh, This person has members of their family who haven't been showing an awful lot of interest in Christian faith, but there there seem to be signs that they are showing a, a little bit of interest. So my friend was wondering about books that they could maybe recommend uh, or something that could pass on to these members uh, of the family to, to read. Uh, I noticed in the email that uh, this, this member of Kirkpatrick Memorial, just a throwaway line towards the end of the email, you have better and more important things to do than sort out reading lists. And I replied later that day with a suggestion of a book, but I couldn't, I couldn't overlook that comment. I said, I absolutely don't have anything better to do than to help you 
as you grow and invite other people to grow in Jesus. That's why I'm here. It got me thinking, um, how well do we understand uh, each other's work, the kind of work that I'm trying to do here as minister in this congregation? I have a theory, actually, by now. Uh, I suppose I watched over the years as a, a young guy, people getting jobs and talking about their jobs. Do you know when a conversation, when you ask somebody what their job is, they tell you their job title, and in the back of your mind you're going, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I just don't know what your job really is. You've told me where you work. You've told me what your job title is, but I have a theory that very few of us actually understand each other's work very well. It's the kind of thing we probably, the only way to get it would be to do swaps or something, go and work in each other's job for a week and, and see if we could work it out a bit. This morning, Paul talks about his work. That's why um, I'm choosing to, to raise that question for you. Um, just very quickly, uh, maybe you're here today and haven't been with us much over the last few weeks or you, you've missed one or two of the weeks. Paul's writing a letter to a bunch of Christians in a town called Colossae, but also to a couple of nearby towns, Laodicea and Heropolis. He's never met these guys. He didn't plant their church, and that's a bit unusual. Paul usually writes to communities that he knows, but he doesn't know these guys very well. They have come to faith uh, through the teaching of one of Paul's understudies, really, a guy called Epaphras. And we've said a number of times that judging by what he says in the letter, it looks like these, these Christians, uh, these young Christians in Colossae and around the area. They're under pressure. Um, it looks like their pagan neighbors are looking at them and thinking, goodness, you guys are following this crucified Jewish uh, rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. That, that looks a bit weird. That can't possibly be enough. Come back. Come back into paganism. We have a God for every day of the week, every eventuality. We've got life covered and at the same time, they had Jewish background believers in the church who were telling them, no, no, just having Jesus isn't enough. You now need to come right into the Jewish faith, take on the Jewish laws, the Jewish traditions, the Jewish holy days. You need, to, you need more than you currently are. You're, you're not enough as you are. So they're being told they, they aren't worldly enough. They don't have enough of the world's wisdom. And they're being told they're not religious enough. Um, and Paul writes this letter to these young Christians with a very simple message, actually. He says, Jesus is everything. If you have him, you have and you are enough. He's done a few things so far in his letter. He started by thanking God for these young Christians. They're not perfect, but Paul, Paul sees a lot of Christ in them. So he thanks God for them. He then prays for them that there could be more of God's work in their lives. And then the third thing that Paul has done, and Monty uh, elaborated on this last week in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1, Paul, I, I think what he does here is he sort of like bursts into song. He gets carried away, he gets very excited about Jesus, and he tells us a lot about Jesus. He tells us that Jesus is really over everything, and the, the two Two phrases Monty offered you last week. There's no one like Christ and there's nothing like his church. No one like Christ, 
nothing like his church. If you remember, Monty encouraged us to, to stand firm in Christ, but then also to expect to move on because when you stand firm in Christ, you find yourself moving on because he's on the move. He takes us places. He wants us to grow. And it's been lovely to see how with different people teaching and different passages, how there's a, a really strong thread developing here. We're saying the same thing, but saying it in different ways. It's because we're enough in Christ that we can stand. And it's because Christ wants more for us that we'll find ourselves being drawn to move on. Folks, we've reached this point in our passage now where Paul talks about his work. I think we can learn a lot here about what motivates Paul, about what's at the heart of a church, if, if this is what leadership in a church is all about. The way we're going to tackle it um, is to try and answer three questions. Who gave Paul his work? What is Paul's work? And why did he do this work? The who, the what, and the why of Paul's work. First of all, who gave him his work? Who does Paul work for? Who's his employer? Now, I used to work as a, an accountant before I was a minister, so the questions of employment, and uh, I suppose when I reflected on who's Paul's employer, I thought, flip, that is not an easy question to answer. Uh, from a, an employment law or a taxation point of view, so what you have here is a guy who's an itinerant preacher, but also makes tents. He serves different churches. He works in different countries all over the, the Roman Empire, and he spends a bit of time in prison. Like, who would want to be his financial advisor? Who'd want to sort that out? Who, who, who would want to tell Paul who his employer is? It's not easy to say who Paul's legal uh, employer is. But that doesn't seem to be the question he's got at the heart of him here. Look at verse 25. Very clear in Paul's own mind. He says, I've become its, that is the church's servant, by the commission God gave me. And if you look right back to the very first verse of the whole letter, he introduces himself there as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul is commissioned by God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to serve the church. He's entirely sure of who has appointed him and he's entirely sure of what they've appointed him to. So who's your boss? Just allow a moment for that image of the boss to flash up in your mind. Shouldn't be doing that on a Sunday. Do you see them? Who's your boss? Whether you're a teacher or a minister or an engineer or a surgeon, if you're in Christ, he's your boss. We'll see this and we'll take much more time on it later on in this letter. In chapter 3, where Paul's talking about economics, household economics, he says, Obey your earthly master in everything as working for the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. Paul says, Work as if Jesus was your boss, because he is. <laughs> As if he was your boss, because actually, ultimately and finally, he is your boss. So we've talked for a moment about the who question. Who is Paul working for? Who gave Paul his work? God did. What about the what 
question. What work did God give Paul to do? What's his commission? Simply put, in verse 25 still, Paul says that his commission from God is to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. Paul, give them my word. All of it. That's, that's what I want you to do. Paul knows that a preacher's main job isn't to comment on current affairs. It's not to suggest answers to each of the, the world's problems as they arise. The preacher is to present the word of God in all its fullness. Give them my word, Paul. Notice how Paul goes on to talk uh, about the word of God in its fullness. You might have found this tricky. Um, he talks about it as the mystery that's been kept hidden from age, for ages and generations. I think there's something technical going on here that we don't quite see, and I'm going to take just a, a moment to explain it. Sometimes Paul's working in, in the Jewish worldview of his time in ways that you and I can't understand, but just by a simpler reading. There's a well-known Jewish idea in the culture at this point, and, and Paul, I think, is grabbing it and re, revisiting it in the light of the gospel. Around about the time the New Testament's being written, uh, and for centuries before, Jewish people had been looking forward to a day when, when God was going to come and act in history. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's the kind of thing they were looking for, but um, they, they were waiting for, for hundreds of years. They'd, they'd gone through an exile. They'd been oppressed now by, first of all, you know, Grecian culture had swept through. Uh, now they were under the Romans. God's people were waiting for God to act, God to show up, God to do the kind of thing that he had done under great King David. Uh, and they didn't know how he was going to do that, so they, they referred to it as a mystery. Uh, they were waiting with bated breath to see what God's secret plans were. Uh, this, this had been on their mind for not just years or decades, but centuries. In verse 26, Paul says, yeah, let me tell you about the mystery. It's already been unveiled. We're not waiting any longer. And the answer is not a new military leader. The answer is not a roadmap to some new political peace in our region. The mystery is a person. What we've been waiting for for centuries is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to, to summarize this, this idea that everything has culminated now and has been revealed in Jesus. Verse 27, he, he makes it very, very personal for these guys in Colossae. This mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that amazing? God's big plan, the mystery that he's been waiting to unveil, the thing that's now come to fulfillment is that Jesus Christ has come, not only has come, but in you. The hope of glory. Folks, this is why we were made. Monty touched on this last week and I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. He talked about the image of God and he talked about how in the ancient world, 
if a ruler rules a region, he builds a statue of himself in that region to show that it's, it's his part of the world. There was another reality about, uh, about the image. In the ancient world, there'd be a temple at the heart of any significant community. And the spirit of the God, whoever that God was thought to be, the spirit of that God was understood to live in that temple. And what is it Paul talks about in his other letters? Who is it he says is the temple? It's you and it's me. The presence of the living God in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't it incredible? Paul is talking at this point about his, his work, and, and he elaborates a wee bit, I think, in verse 28. He talks about uh, Jesus, and he says, He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. He uses three different verbs here, but I think they're, they're mostly around the same thing. They're all about teaching. He proclaims Jesus. That means Paul does the kind of thing that I'm doing here today. He stands up before a crowd and he, he tells them about Jesus. He tells them that Jesus is the Son of God. That he came into the world to die, to die and to save sinners. People like you and like me. To tell people that without Jesus they are lost. This is what Paul does. Paul proclaims Jesus Christ. And so do I. Or try to. If you're new to Kirkpatrick and you're not quite sure of what we're all about here, uh, then I better warn you now, if you keep coming here, you're going to hear me banging on about Jesus. That's what I do. I'm not going to stop. All right? If that's getting boring for anybody, um, forgive me. That, that's what I will do. Paul says that he proclaims Jesus. He goes on to say that he admonishes and teaches I think those are probably just two, a, a negative and a positive side of the same coin. Admonishing. Admonishing, in a sense, is straightening something out that's got a little bit crooked. Sometimes positive teaching isn't enough. If somebody gives us endless, good, correct teaching, but isn't ever taking the time to explain where, where the foundations might be shaky, or we might have gone wrong, then the, even the good positive teaching won't land properly and won't do its work. So um, a, a good teaching ministry will always have an element of admonishment as well as teaching. Um, Paul wants to admonish and teach. So we've talked here about the who give Paul his work, and we've said God did. We've talked about the what uh, of, of his work, and it's this message about Jesus in all its fullness. And this third question, Paul, why? Why do you do this work? Verse 28, he tells us, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Sometimes our Bible translations don't help us. The word perfect here doesn't probably mean perfect. It means something more like complete or mature. 
Paul wants to see people in Colossae and all around these network of churches uh, growing and maturing in Jesus Christ. He takes a a few more verses in those early verses of chapter 5 to to flesh that out a bit. What's he looking for? What does maturity look like? Verse 2, he wants that they would be encouraged in heart, united in love, having the full riches of complete understanding of Christ. Folks, I, I get this. I can see why Paul wants that. I get his why. I've loved over the years seeing Kirkpatrick grow into a church that, from a church that was close to closing into a place that's now often very, very full. I love to see that corporate growth, that growth in the whole body. But actually, there's something I love more. And that's to see you grow. Not usings. That's the only Ulster grammatical way of saying that, isn't it? There's no differentiation. In, okay. I love seeing usings grow. I've said that. But I love seeing you grow. My greatest joy is to see a single person take a single step closer to Jesus Christ. That's what gets me excited. That's what lights me up. And I have to say it, my greatest heartache is the converse. When after five or 10 or 15 years together, I have a sense that you've maybe stalled or that you're going backwards. That breaks my heart. So I get Paul. I know why he's talking like this and why he's been praying the way he has. We've answered the who, the what, and the why questions, I think, regarding Paul's work. But this idea that it's hard work, where I've sort of landed here at the moment, this preaching Christ, leading churches, making disciples, that's a part of our passage that we haven't had a chance to reflect on yet today, and just for a moment. Verse 24, Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I've filled up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Verse 29, to this end I labor and struggle. Verse 20, chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how hard I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea. He's a bit honest there, isn't he? I'm thankful for you. I'm praying for you. Jesus is great. But, but listen, this is hard work. So Paul's struggling. He's, he's suffering uh, as he's doing this work that God's commissioned him to. But I love, I love that he doesn't finish with that. He talks about his struggles uh, and uh, the, the demands that he feels, but he's able to go on, keep going on, because, verse 29, because of all his energy, which works so powerfully in me. Christ in me. The hope of glory. 
I'm suffering and I'm struggling. It's really hard work. Christ in me. The hope of glory. I was sharing with some friends uh, recently who have just come through what's probably been the most difficult year in my church leadership ministry so far. And one of the guys asked me, he said, how did you keep going? I hadn't anticipated being asked the question, so I didn't have a clever answer. I said, I don't know. I had no strategy. I had no plan. What I found myself doing day after day and Sunday after Sunday is asking God to come and to work through me. It's like what Paul says here in verse 29. When we have got nothing left of ourselves to give, then we can still know all of his energy working powerfully through us. Maybe you're struggling. You're, well, a lot of the guys out there are struggling as we speak, right? Struggling to lead our, our children in Sunday club. Struggling in some part of our youth ministry. Struggling in your home and your own family. Maybe you're an elder, finding it hard to lead your discipleship group. Feels like you go through the motions, but you wonder, does anything happen? Does anything, does anybody grow? Does anybody change? Maybe you're just in any sort of a relationship where you are wanting to present somebody mature in Jesus Christ. Folks, Christian leadership is a struggle. As soon as I teach this and you reflect on it for a moment, I want you to forget I ever said that so that when I ask you to volunteer for a ministry, you'll say, yes, pick me. Christian leadership is a struggle with real cost and suffering involved. David Watson says, making disciples is not easy. It will always mean hard work. That may be partly the reason for the failure of the church as a whole to take discipling seriously. Few, if any of us, feel qualified for the task. Paul, however, spoke of the mighty inspiration of the Spirit when it comes to making others mature in Christ. We must trust the Spirit's resources as we seek to obey Christ's great commission. Christ in you the hope of glory. Paul's been very personal at this part in the letter, and I'm going to finish this morning by just saying a few personal words to you. You're my Colossae. I came here for you. Yes, usums, you in the plural, but also you, singular. I came here to be a pastor to you, that's why I'm here. To create a community where each one of us can grow in Jesus Christ.
My journey to be here with you today started before we knew each other, most of us. Working as a, a young trainee chartered accountant at a sense God calling me to, to come and do this work. Some theological training later in Vancouver and in Belfast. An assistant minister post split over Lambeg and Balamina. And 15 years ago, I came here to Kirkpatrick Memorial. I came here for you. To see those of you who don't yet know Jesus get to know him. To see that life without him is just not a life. To help you find life in him. To see those of you who already know Jesus, to see if we could grow together. If we could move on as we were thinking about last week. I've struggled and I've struggled to present every last one of us mature in Christ. That's what I want to do. That's why I'm here. I came here for you. And people talk about church growth and I say let them get on with it. Um, I want to see you grow. That's what I want. Every job nowadays has its indicators, doesn't it? The, the factors by which you're evaluated uh, as a measure of, of success and failure. It's the kind of thing your boss pulls out at the annual review. A businessman, what does he do? Well, he goes after profit. A teacher looks at their grades at the end of the year. The farmer, he wants a crop. The, the doctor, he's after patients cured. I'm here for you. Your growth in Jesus Christ is my KPI, my key performance indicator. Your growing in Jesus is my bottom line. I, do you know, I don't have anything else on my CV other than you. You are my life's work. And I just love it when I see Christ in you. It makes my spirit soar and it makes my heart sing. Like Paul, chapter 2, verse 5, I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Let's pray.